Well, this past week I had the opportunity to go to Houston, Texas. So I was in Houston uh, for a part of the week. I actually got to, to go not just by myself, but was joined by uh, some friends from the congregation here, the Cusacks, who are here this morning. So uh, we had a good old time down in Houston. We actually visited the National Museum of Funeral History, or what I like to call coming attractions. <laughs> So if you're ever in Houston and you want to eat yourself some brisket and look at some caskets, there you go. <laughs> well, it was a great time uh, down there uh, hearing from N.T. Wright, uh, who was teaching through the, bo- the book of Acts. And one of the things he said in that, in that time, he talked about the book of Romans at one point, referred to as a theological symphony in, in four parts. And uh, we're going to be going into the book of Romans here between now and, and mid-September, the, uh, the Revised Common Lectionary actually journeys down this path. And so we'll be using that epistle reading uh, here for the next few months, going through Romans. If you've never read the book of Romans before, now's your chance. Uh, we drop in at chapter 4 today on this first week of it, but there's three chapters before that. And of course, as we go through, we'll get little snippets here and there uh, throughout the entire time. But uh, take a read through that. It's, uh, I would call it required reading uh, for a Jesus follower. Uh, because it is uh, a, a key, key work in the New Testament, thought of very highly all the way back from the, the time it came off uh, the pen, so to speak. And so uh, take a look at that, read that. If you read through it and you, and you find yourself going, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm reading, I'm having a hard time grasping that, you're not alone. Uh, Romans can sometimes uh, go that way. Paul's style of writing can go that way sometimes. So take your time. Read slowly, and we'll, we'll try to talk about some of the parts of that as we go along here uh, in these, these summer sermon uh, series. In the foreword of Jonathan Linebaugh's uh, book, The Word of the Cross, Reading Paul, uh, John uh, M.G. Barclay writes this. He says, The COVID-19 pandemic has made our human cries for comfort and hope both louder and more urgent. It has required us to face death with greater realism. It has exposed our insecurities And it has made us ask more plaintively, where can we find a reliable love? It's made us ask, where can we find a reliable love? I suspect that that same question resonates with a great number of us. Each asking in our own way, where such love can be found? Well, I think I've found the place. I've found the witness to this. The New Testament book of Romans points to such a way. And it does so within the framework of what ancient Jesus followers called the good message or the good news. We call this gospel, and the gospel is an important part of Paul's message to the Roman Christians. In fact, you might say it is Paul's message to the Roman Christians. Right from the outset of the letter, Paul notes that he has been set apart for the gospel. That's right in verse 1. That this gospel was promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's verse 2. He's coming out swinging about gospel right away from the beginning. That this gospel concerns Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Who is our Lord, resurrected from the dead. That's keyed in verse 4. That this gospel is connected with words like grace and Paul's apostleship and obedience of faith. That's verse 5. Again, these are just the first five verses of this book. That this same gospel is pointed towards Gentiles. Screeching halt. Wait, what? If you were a Jewish Christian in the first century and you heard that, screeching halt. Wait, what? What did you just say? What was that, Paul? That's pointed towards Gentiles in verse 5. And those called to belong to Jesus Christ in verse 6. That last piece is a little tricky. 
Especially, as I said, for the ears of some of the first century Jewish Jesus followers. Especially when Paul, who is Jewish himself, goes on to say far more here when he writes, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. That's verse 7. And he clarifies what he means by all in verse 16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is God's saving power for everyone who believes. First, for the Jew and also for the Greek. The gospel declares that the designation of God's people is for all nations. It's all people groups. That there's no second tier status when it comes to the gospel and it comes to God's people. And that's a rather challenging word to a group that fancied themselves unique and exclusive. And they had the marks to show it, literally. When Paul, what Paul is saying here, or giving witness to, is that now folks outside the fold are counted in. These seemingly uninitiated at best, and if you read chapter 1 of Romans, idolatrous pagans at worst. These will now be counted amongst God's people as well. And this all from an ancient promise. Of course, we're heading into a political season. We're already in it if you read the news these days. Uh, but when those ads rev up, we're going to hear a lot about promises made and promises kept. Get ready for it. Here come the ads. Of course, that doesn't tell the whole story. Perhaps a more humble sum and few could be inserted to be more truthful. Some promises made, few were kept. But politicians aren't alone in this. I went to a website this last week, becauseisaidiwould.org. That's a real website, becauseisaidiwould.org. It's also a 501c3. And they observe this, a lot of people don't keep their promises these days. That might just seem like social commentary, but think about how many people promise to quit smoking, graduate, recycle, or volunteer, and they don't. The consequences of broken promises plague the world. That's what they write on their website. I think many of us would agree that broken promises do plague the world, and certainly the worlds we live in. But here's the thing. God is no politician, and God is not like you, and God is not like me. Our text appeals this morning to a promise of old that God makes to Abraham. It's an ancient promise that we can trace all the way back to Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram to a new land, to become a great people, to bless him and make his name great, and the same Abram will be a blessing. The language, inherit the world, that we see in our Romans passage in verse 13, isn't a direct quote of this promise in Genesis, but it does capture in summary what the promise entails. And that's quite something, with the recipient being an elderly man with no children of his own at the time when the promise is given. It's an old man seemingly with no future. But to borrow a phrase from Luther's great hymn, Abram is the man of God's own choosing. Though Luther has Jesus in mind, of course. Though perhaps it could be said here that God had Jesus in mind as well. You follow that promise out. The man of God's own choosing to bless his family and descendants as well to be blessed and through him all the nations to receive blessing. The promise then holds that what God has in mind will span much further than one clan or one ethnic group. And that's where the trouble comes in. Why? Imagine for a moment here that you're at the reading of a will. Like I said, I went to the National Museum of Funeral History, so illustrations kind of stem out of that. The estate is about to be divided and distributed to the heirs, of which you are one, along with a host of other known family members. You all look the part. 
pictured in all the photos, participating in regularly in family functions, attending the family's holidays. But just before the reading gets underway, a motley group that doesn't conform to the family's values shows up and identifies themselves in sister sledge fashion. We are family. Right? They come in. I know you guys hear stuff like that. And you're just like, man, that guy, what does his YouTube feed look like? And of course, this motley crew isn't wrong. Even more so. They have a claim to the inheritance, an equal claim. But how can that be? They don't look the part. They're uncircumcised. If we go to our text. They haven't attended family functions and holidays. Or our text. They don't observe Torah. How can these now be real heirs? These are the questions, of course, that are swirling in the minds of ancient Christian communities. And in some cases, those same swirling is being exploited. So here is where Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, sorts it out. Or more closely, where Abram, also Abraham, comes in. Before cutting the covenant in Genesis 15:18, and before physically cutting anyone, the mark of circumcision, as a covenant marker in Genesis chapter 17, God calls Abram. That's back in chapter 12 of Genesis. A man who was living in the land steeped with idolatry. Comes from Ur of the Chaldees. That Abram himself, the great insider to the Jewish community, you know, good old father Abraham, is at the same time the great outsider like the Gentile nations. But God still calls him. Still calls him. And when God calls, Abram goes. And when the promise is once more affirmed in Genesis 15, it says that Abram believed the Lord. Abram trusts. And before we might imagine Abram to be some great pious and flawless individual, read his story. He's kind of a scoundrel. But Paul will draw the connection here in all of this to a basis for how all people are to relate to God. Believe and trust the promises of the one who is faithful. We catch a glimpse of what this trust looks like for Abraham in verse 17 of our text that we might call this here the faith of Abraham. First of all, he believes God gives life to the dead. This, of course, is a capability of the one whose breath raises life from the dust of the ground. If we go back to the creation account. And animates the world. Abram leans into this promise, this divine power, in a later episode where he is tested with the sacrifice of his son Isaac. And the reason for commendation that's given in Genesis 22 is quite telling. Because you have obeyed my voice, Abram not only trusts God's ability, but is obedient to God's word as well. Let that line sink in a little bit about who Abram is in his faith. I had a professor in my undergrad uh, years uh, named Professor Kowalski. And he talked about a simple definition for faith, which matches what we hear with Abraham here. It says, trusting obedience. Trusting obedience. And that's what we see with Abram here. The second thing we see with faith here is, Abram believes God calls into existence the things that do not exist. This capacity echoes God's work in creation, where God speaks into existence that which is not, what we call ex nihilo, that the promise of which God speaks, even when the reality on the ground looks far from what is said to emerge, can be embraced with faith and hope. Notable to Abram's life is his trusting that there is coming land and a coming heir 
promises whose fulfillment were not yet on the distant horizon, and certainly must have sounded like silly tales to outsiders looking in. Of course, in all of this, there's a model for the Christian life, which would not have escaped Paul, that Jesus' followers, those who are marked as heirs, trust the grace that has been extended to them, who believe God is able to give life to the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, trust God's word, and believe the promise of new life and new creation that they are entering into. When Abram exercises trust or faith, not when he is circumcised and not when he gets his act together, but when he trusts, the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's good news. That's good news. But the good news is that this is not just for Abram or for Abraham. As Paul will make clear in verses 23 through 24, this same benefit will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This here is the entry point to God's people based in God's own faithfulness. We, like Abraham, respond. And just in case you were ready to write that old Father Abraham song off, do you know the song I'm talking about? The one where he has many sons and many migraines and many furniture being knocked over as kids are raising their right hands and left hands and spinning around and sitting down. Father Abraham had many sons. That's all we're going to do. No more this morning. Maybe that song was right all along. Except it's a little bit limiting with just sons, but it's sort of right. Well, this past week, as I mentioned, I was in Houston, and I spent a lot of time in Ubers while traveling around Houston, and that's where I met John. Actually, we met John. We were all riding the same Uber. He's an Uber driver who was retired early from the biomedical field following a major breakthrough and a cash windfall. John shared how shortly before he left the company, he had a religious epiphany, and as you hear this story, I just want to note, you're going, Jimmy talks to his Uber drivers? Yes, I do. They do. They do. So he has this epiphany before he leaves the company, though not being a religious person to that point in his life. In John's words, what he came to be impressed with, seemingly out of the blue, was that the Christian message was all true. Not because of some evangelist. It's just an epiphany he had. All of a sudden, it's all true. It sounds like God is still calling people to faith, like our ancestor, Abraham. And those who are called often come from places we least expect. A motley bunch, people together as siblings, as sibling Jesus followers, welcomed through the same entry place, Jesus Christ, and Christ's death and resurrection. Paul says as much in Romans, and and that, of course, is good news. But what does that mean for, for us here this morning? Let me offer uh, three suggestions here. The first one is this. Anything close to segregation, racism, and various sorts of exclusion look very foreign to the message of the gospel. They sound very strange to a gospel that's extended to all nations, which is the point that Paul's going to make from Romans. It would be an odd sort of claim to say that that's what Jesus has in mind, because clearly that's not what Jesus has in mind. Actually, something to the contrary. And so, should we find our hearts 
moving in any of those directions, it's a chance for us to check ourselves. Or as they say, check yourself before you wreck yourself. The second one is this. Our posture then is not to critically judge others to see if they quote-unquote measure up, but rather to welcome and extend a welcome. To be that embracing presence that welcomes people in, finds them a place, a seat at the table. But the strange thing in all of this is we don't have to find them a seat, we just have to show them their seat because their seat has already been placed at the table. And so we just shuffle them on over to their place where they've been scheduled to sit. Of course, that makes me wonder. I just wonder. Every once in a while I wonder about things. That's what this is all about. Why don't we have more people interested in being on our welcome team, serving as an usher, being part of the hospitality team? That seems like that would be frontline work for us, right? So we welcome people in. Let that sit with you for a little while when you think about where you might want to volunteer here at John Knox. The third thing is this, and not to be, not to be forgotten in any of all this, the gospel is for us. The good news is for each one of us, for you and for me. We might think about ourselves, and just in that moment we want to build ourselves up and, and put ourselves and think of ourselves really highly might do well to go back to the prophet Hosea, who seems to show a good mirror to good old Jimmy here, when he observes in Hosea chapter 6, your love is like a morning cloud. Sounds kind of poetic, right? It's like a morning cloud. Like the dew that goes away early. Ugh, yikes, not as poetic as I thought. Don't put that on your Valentine's Day card. Right? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. It's gone. It's there in a second, it's gone. And oftentimes that's how we relate to one another. Even the people that we love the most, we sometimes can be just the morning cloud, that dew that disappears. But again, that's not like God's love. God's love is far different. God's love is far more faithful. God's love is faithful. So I close with a quote here from an observation. I think it's helpful on this point. Jennifer uh, Peets observes here. She writes, The God of Abraham is the same God who has dealt decisively with the sin that alienates humans from God through the death of Jesus Christ, God's own Son. By also raising Jesus from the dead, God makes it possible for people to live new lives in restored relationship with God and others. She says, this is pure gift. People are merely called to trust the faithful and merciful giver. That's what God's love's like coming from the faithful and merciful giver. It's pure gift. And what a gift. And what a promise. Friends, we're going to hear more about this promise as we go into the summer months here and look at Romans. But today we do well to sit with these words of promise, knowing that God indeed loves us. May we sit with those not only today, but all the days of our life and forever. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning for your great love for us. A love that takes action. A love that gives. A love that goes forward and pointing towards that day when the great blessing would go out to all the nations. And here we are as recipients of that blessing. And so in grateful response, Lord, we, we trust and we believe. We offer our lives to you. 
Lord, this morning I pray for anyone in this room who hears these words and has not responded with that trust or that belief. I pray, Lord, that once more your spirit would continue that good work of proclaiming your love to them and your grace extended to them, that they might respond gratefully as well. We offer our lives to you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.